Good morning. This morning's scripture is from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live in a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Thank you very much. I'll get it. I'll get it. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Somehow I ended up on all three parts of the service today. So I'll take it from here, too. Um, okay. So <laughs> this is our passage today. Um, and I'm going to start off a little different. Uh, so there's this. Uh, hi, by the way. My name's Tommy. Good to meet you. I was the one singing and crying. Um, <laughs> A minute ago, but here I am, happy. And uh, glad you're here. We, we've been going through Romans for a little over a year. Uh, should be wrapping up pretty soon. We're going to jump into Revelation. Um, but we have been doing it backwards. And for the last two weeks, we have been studying the idea of sin. Uh, last week was part one. This is part two. There may be a part three, depending on how I'm feeling next week. Um, we'll see. Uh, but there is this passage in the book of Romans in chapter, let's see. Oh, I have it. In chapter seven. Verse 15 and 16. I'm just going to throw this one in the mix too. It says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And all God's people said, amen. Um, we, <clears throat> this is a particular verse that sort of explains the human condition, if you will. It, it, Paul is connecting with everyone here when he says this. Um, in order to drive this home, first I'm going to have a word of prayer and then I'm going to read you a children's book. Okay? Never done this before. But I think all the truth that Paul is saying is found also in a children's book. And I'm going to read that to you. And then we're going to talk more about other stuff. We have a whole journey this morning. This is going to be fun. Let's pray. Father, uh, be with us now. Help us to be present. Help us to be awake and present and here with each other and with you. I pray that you would remove all the distractions of our week. That you would push those things aside. Allow us to grasp some of these things that your early, earliest followers were, were, were wrestling with. Um, Namely, how we are to look at sin, how do we are to work to purge it, why we should do this, what is the purpose of, of locating and pointing out sin, what, what is it, and, and, and how does it function. And so like, I pray that you would give us some direction and give us some vision um, of a path forward for us so that we can follow you into Christ-likeness and so that we can also keep at bay these things which destroy us so easily. Um, keep us focused and I'll, uh, this morning. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Okay. So, like I said, uh, there's a book that I used to read as a kid. Uh, as a kid. I used to read to my kids when they were little. And once in a while, I have one kid that still likes me to read it. It's called Frog and Toad. Have any of you read Frog and Toad? 
We've got a few Frog and Toad fans. Frog and Toad is the pinnacle of children's writing. It's, um, it's high literature for, for brilliant kids. Um, and there's this particular story called Cookies. And I would like to read that story to you now. Here we go. It's, it's written for kids, okay? So it sounds like this. Ready? Toad baked some cookies. These cookies smell very good, said Toad. And he ate one. And they taste even better, he said. Toad ran to Frog's house. Frog, frog, cried Toad. Taste these cookies that I have made. Frog ate one of the cookies. These are the best cookies I have ever eaten, said Frog. Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another. You know, Toad, said Frog with his mouth full, I think we should stop eating cookies. We will soon be sick. You are right, said Toad. Let us eat one last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one last cookie. There were many cookies left in the bowl. Frog, said Toad, let us eat one very last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. We must stop eating, cried Toad, as he ate another. Yes, said Frog, reaching for a cookie. We need willpower. What is willpower? asked Toad. Willpower means trying hard not to do something that you really want to do, said Frog. You mean like trying hard not to eat all these cookies? asked Toad. Right, said Frog. And there's a bunch more, and, and I'm, gonna just gonna, I'm gonna bring it to the important part. Frog put the cookies in a box. Frog tied some string around the box. Uh, Frog got a ladder, and he put the box on a top shelf, on, on a high shelf. There, said Frog, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can climb the ladder and take the box down from the shelf and cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. And so then they run outside and they throw the cookies out for the birds. That's the story. And the whole time I'm reading this story, my kids are always dying laughing. It's the best story. And adults always die laughing too because we also eat too many cookies and cannot stop. Um, so, the, so by <laughs> all of this sort of speaks to something. He even brings up the idea of willpower. I, there's a lot of studies. There's a, there's a book by, I think it was Benjamin Hardy, that he, he writes about how, it, I think the book is called Willpower Does Not Work, because willpower um, is overpowered by the context in which you live and the things that are in your house and the things that are around you will keep you acting in the same way as before. And that's what I want to talk about, because there's this thing that Paul does with sin. I mean, all of this has always been true, um, there's this thing about sin that it's mysterious and, and we have a hard time just saying no to the things that we don't want to do. They're always there beckoning us, calling us, well, I could just do it one time, right? Like it wouldn't be a big deal. And we want to do it more and more and more. And we can't stop. And no matter what we do, oftentimes we just can't make the right decision and, and do the right thing and move in the right direction. And so in the first century Judaism, there was this practice they had called uh, building fences. And so they would have this law that they would make. And after they made this law, they wanted to make sure that you didn't break this law. And so in order to make sure you didn't break this law, they would put other laws around that law, like a fence. So like if you weren't supposed to, you know, do like work on a Saturday, they would, they would put all kinds of other laws of things you have to do on a Saturday, on a Friday, really, to keep you from working on a Saturday. Um, we do this today ourselves in evangelicalism. I grew up in a particular form of evangelicalism that, that always put laws around things, around other laws that weren't necessarily wrong. Um, I wasn't allowed to eat things like Big League Chew. I played baseball and I wasn't allowed to use Big League Chew. Do you know why? Because it looked like chewing tobacco, right? And that's bad. You, you see a bunch of nine-year-olds doing chewing tobacco. Um, and then um, I wasn't allowed to do that. And so, uh, hold on, I made, I made a good list here. Uh, I wasn't allowed to order root beer in a brown bottle, obviously. Um, no one likes it when they see an eight-year-old drinking either. Um, I wasn't allowed to go to the movie theaters at all. Literally, my entire life, I wasn't allowed to go to movie theaters until I was an adult. Um, and, I, and I didn't. Um, LAUGHTER 
But I wasn't allowed to go because they had R-rated movies there, like Face Off and like Passion of the Christ. And I wasn't allowed, you don't want to see these as a kid. Um, and so we did all this, of course, because we felt that sin, however we defined it, was sneaky. The temptation, we often couldn't, it couldn't be resisted and that you can't trust yourself to, to make the right choices. And I used to hear people say, the devil made me do it. I'm really sorry, the devil made me do it. Uh, or, you know, something came over me or I couldn't resist. I, I just, I was in a position and I just did it. I don't know what happened. I did it and I shouldn't have done it. And... When you actually look, I can get them off the screen for you. When you actually look at sin, when you actually look at Paul's description of sin in Romans 5 through 8, this is what you see. Now, the thing I want to teach this morning is something that I learned in seminary um, years ago that, that really changed everything for me. Like, it was the kind of thing where, like, once I saw, there was a person who, who there was this book by, okay, let me just set a context. There's a book by, um, his last name is Krauss, Kraussman, uh, and the book is called The Emergence of Sin. And in this book, he lays out this model of, the subtitle is like, it's, um, it's Paul's view of sin in Romans 5 through 8, in the book of Romans. And once I saw this, it sort of began to impact other parts of my life, because once I saw how things kind of function in Paul's mind regarding sin, it sort of lays out this grid for how, how to become free of things as you move through life, how to, how to grow in wisdom, how to grow in Christ-likeness, how to grow in holiness. Um, and it just was shocking. And so, like, I've taught it, I used to teach a class on it here. I believe I've taught it one other time on a Sunday, but I think it was about four years ago. So here we go again. Um, because I think this is some of the most important stuff that, I mean, it's helped me. Maybe perhaps it will help you as well. Um, so when you look at, at Romans chapter 5 through 8, you see something really, uh, really interesting. Paul talks about sin in a particular way, and, and, and he gives sin sort of agency, if you will. Look at, look at some of this. Uh, Romans 5.12, sin enters and sin brings death. Romans 6.6-7 says there is a body of sin and it enslaves. So sin can enslave people. Uh, 6.12, sin reigns and has evil desires. Okay, this is getting more interesting. Sin has desires? Sin reigns over things? Um, sin in 6.23, sin brings death. In 7.8.8, sin causes someone to covet. Of course, we've all sort of experienced this. There's some things that we're like, yeah, like, sure, but there's some other aspects as well that are very human. Sin springs to life in 7.8. Um, in 7.11, it says sin deceives and sin puts to death, so it kills. 7.20, sin sins. That's what it says in 7.20, sin sins. Um, it's really fascinating. It is not me, it is my sin that has caused me to sin, essentially. And so you have this weird dichotomy. These are things that people do. And Paul is describing them to a philosophical idea. And you kind of ask the question, like, how can Paul describe sin like this? Does this have any basis in reality? Is Paul just making stuff up? Does this make any sense at all in our life? Um, and all of these things, because they sound like things people do, how can non-tangible thing, like a philosophical and spiritual idea like sin, cause us to do anything? And that's where this idea of emergence theory sort of comes in. If you're not familiar with emergence theory, emergence theory has to do with how individual things come together to form bigger things that have different and new properties, um, and, and how they are formed. How, and then also what this thing does to the individual pieces. And I'm gonna, as I go through this morning, I'm going to explain all this. Um, but, but sort of emergence theory, can, you could, a starter description would look like this. Look at a simple thing like letters. Letters are just letters. They don't really say anything. There's a T, there's an L, there's an R. But when you start to put them together, they form words. And these words, when you put them together, can form sentences. And as, as you begin to add more sentences, they form paragraphs. And eventually, you have a whole book. But a letter 
is not a book, a paragraph is not a book, but a book cannot exist without all these individual pieces. This is emergence theory. This is how little things grow and make another thing. But a book also will affect how that writer writes future books, how they use their letters and words and sentences in the future. Everyone comes up with this style once they sort of build a body, and that body sort of determines how they write. And so there's this way that it moves. If, I, if you put it on a graph, it sort of looks like this. So you have these individual pieces and parts of a thing, and they come together to what's called supervenience. Now, supervenience can be defined as individual parts that come together and form a new structure dependent upon the individual parts. The structure can't be formed without the individual things, um, but the individual things often don't mean to form a structure. It just kind of happens. But you have individual parts, and they grow, and they supervene into a structure, into a, a main thing. We're going to talk about uh, the structures in a bit as well. But then there's another part of this that has called downward causation. And downward causation is very simple. It's the emergent... It doesn't sound simple, but it is. The emergent structure alters the behavior of the parts by limiting their action. So the parts come together. They form a body. That body then pushes down and puts sort of new rules and limitations on the individual parts as they move in. Now, this will make more sense as I go, but I think I have a good illustration of this. I'm not positive it's going to work. It's a YouTube video. And sometimes with electronics, I feel a little boomery. Here we go. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, hold, hold up, hold up. I know it, it won't be pixeled. Hold up. Okay, here we go. Now, what we have here is opening day, 18 years ago, of the Millennium Bridge in the UK. Now, they open this bridge on opening day. People start walking across. You don't need to see the details. You just need to see a sort of the motion. Now, notice the bridge is beginning to flex and beginning to move. What's happening is the people are walking across the bridge. Their individual footsteps are walking. And each individual footsteps exerts a certain amount of force. And as they walk, that force begins to sort of move the bridge. And sometimes they begin to sync up. And it begins to make the bridge sway. As the bridge sways... It pushes down on the people, and the people begin to lock their steps in with the sway of the bridge so that they don't fall. And as they do that, it causes the structure to shake more and more and more. They had to clear everybody off the bridge, and they had to come up with fixes for this bridge because of what happened here. Um, well, look at this whole thing. Look at the people sort of in the middle. They are, they're all moving together like a dance. So, like, individually, they could never plan this. Try to get a thousand people. Try to get a thousand people to go back and forth. You would never do it. However, as they walk individually, it forms... Oh, look, what else do we want to watch? It forms a structure. It forms a structure that causes them to sync up together. Now, I want you to just think about, think about life. Think about culture. Think about how culture forms, how we form culture, and then how culture forms us. Think about the rise of authoritarianism and how people get wrapped up in it. You sort of take little steps and little things begin to happen and then it forms a body and that body forces you into this thing that you don't want to go into and you go farther and farther. Um, as you look back through history, this is how things arise. You, you see a group of people and they say, I don't know what got into us. If you talk to anybody from January 6th, all their, if you watch all their videos in court, they're like, I, I don't know what got into me. Sociologists do. Um, there's, there's a way that structures come into being, and there's a way that they supervene down onto us. Now, let's talk about sin as emergence theory. Um, Paul breaks sin into two parts. There are little s sins, and there are big s sins. S sins. Um, and, and they are... <laughs> there's people listening, and I slur my words sometimes. I don't want to get letters for that. I didn't mean to say... Um, and so you have... 
You have these little sins and they come, to get, come together to form big S sins that, work, that, that then force downward causation onto the people causing you to make more sins. And if you look at this, you can kind of understand what Paul's getting at. This is, this is what Paul is talking about. Um, there are, uh, hold on, I keep losing connection here. Um, sins are things that we do that add up to create sin. Sin then pushes downwards more of the same upon us, and it forms us to become more and more sinful. Ultimately, it becomes like a feedback loop that works to destroy us. Because this can happen with anything. Uh, We can use it to describe Paul's language of sin here, but also, if you look around at the world and the life you are living, you can see this everywhere. Fast food chains, when you eat fast food all day, it alters your taste buds so that healthy things no longer taste good, and then your body is driving you to eat more fast food. And it forms you. Like, it forms how you think, how you eat. The little things that you do add up to create a body that force you into something else. Um, If you exercise regularly and then you stop for a few days, you get sick or whatever, you just stop for a few days, you begin to feel awful and your body starts crying out for exercise because it's what you've always done and your body, you have formed a body of exercise that now pushes down upon you to do that. So you can form good Good structures, you can form bad structures. Um, If you regularly interact with things like pornography, it will eventually manifest in external actions, looking at bodies in ways that commodifies them. Well, eventually it will manifest on the outside Will you engage with sex workers. Um, The decisions, the little microscopic sort of daily things adjust the trajectory of your life. It's, It's like an algorithm. What you feed into it, it feeds back into you. And pretty quickly, a person can go from a rational person thinking and doing normal things to something wildly out of character because of these little things that add up to, to form them into something else. And so there's a ton of debate. Like a, the, 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 the example I have lately that I've been having a lot of conversations about as culture shifts and change, I've been, doing, I've been pastoring here for 20 years now, and the conversations we're having today are not the conversations we were having 20 years ago. I've had a lot of conversations lately about things like cannabis and things like um, uh, controlled substances and people asking, but are Christians allowed to do this? And I, I see some pastors just quoting the Bible verses and saying, it says here this, and just using the Bible as a law book. I don't read the New Testament like a law book. I believe in following the Spirit and the, as a body of Christ and discerning the path together, what is healthy, what is Christ-like, what, is, what brings us to human flourishing. And so what I do is I encourage people, hey, well, before you get into anything, even if it's prescribed by a doctor or whatever, like, I, I, want you, I want you to read the other side. I want you to fast forward into the future and read the stories of people on the other side. And so maybe that looks like there's a subreddit called Leaves where you can subscribe and you can watch people um, get help with each other on how to quit things like cannabis. Uh, and, and, and they're like, I, I never meant for it to get here. It's controlling my life. I, I have no drive anymore to do anything. I just lay in bed all day. Um, yet I can't stop, and it's controlling my whole life. And I had a guy in my office a few years ago who looked at me and said, look, here's the thing. I, I know it's not addictive, but here's the thing. I'm, I'm depressed when I'm smoking because I'm not going to be smoking later, and when I'm not smoking later, I'm depressed because I'm not smoking later. So, like, I, I'm stuck in this loop, and I don't know how to get out of it. And, and it kind of dawned on me that, like, the decisions are much bigger than just, is this right or wrong? How, are we being, how, are, how, how is this thing forming us? Um, how am I personally wired to handle this thing? Is it wise? Do I have checks about are there other people in my life? Am I in community of people that could call me out if things go off the, off the rails? Is this something that is beneficial for me? Is this something, I mean, like Paul said, sure, all things are, 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 all things are open for you, but, but, but is this a beneficial thing for you? Have you actually opened up in community and talked about this? Have you had conversations with people on the other end? Um, Because 
these things turn into something that we never intended for them to be. And so my pastoral advice is, you need to have community. You need to talk. You need to confess. You need to be open about your life, especially the things that you're terrified of. And you need to get input from people on the other side. Um, Because the way that we live our lives, these little tiny things begin to form us into this other thing. So now I'm going to change the subject and talk about sin as a superorganism. Um, a superorganism is an organism that is a collection of other organisms. Uh, good examples would be a beehive. A beehive is, can't be present without bees. They come together and they naturally just form this structure um, that is interesting. Um, uh, it's made up of both uh, bees, a queen, and a structure that they build. A church is also a, a superorganism. People come together, um, and they form a culture, and they form a body uh, that is something that begins to form the people that are a part of the body. Um, the human body itself, if we bring this down closer, is a superorganism. If you look at it under a microscope, there are, there's, there's entire cultures of, of Microbes working, living all together, all over you at any given moment. Um, it's a superorganism, but also sin is a superorganism. As we look at how Paul describes sin, the emergence of sin, how it grows into this body that then pushes down and changes you. Um, and so, in Paul's mind, there are two bodies that we have to choose from, and we you you cannot have you cannot have both. Uh, no one can serve two masters. Right? So last week I, I put up sort of this, uh, this graphic about the path of Adam and the path of Christ and the difference between the two. And so then as you look at these two different paths, you, you can't be on both paths at the same time. And so Paul offers up, as you read through Matthew 5-8, through 8, you see a lot of talk about Adam. You see a lot of talk about uh, flesh and the spirit. You see a lot of talk about the old Adam and the new Adam. You see a lot of talk about the flesh and Christ. There's all this... Back and forth, Paul is trying to let you know you can't have a foot in both worlds. You, you will end up choosing one. But only one is a decisive choice, which is the path of Jesus. Um, and any individual that takes part in the community will be shaped and formed um, to fit better into that body. First, you have the body of Adam. Again, where you form sin, and sin turns into this thing that ends up forming you. The daily, the daily rhythms of your life that you choose begin to also force you to stay in these rhythms, whether they are good or bad. If they are bad, we're on the path of Adam. Okay? But then there's the other path that he offers is the path of the body of Christ, which, which is centered on goodness. This Hebrew word for tov, there's a book in the lobby called... Uh, called Tove, actually, that's what it's called, um, about building healthy churches. We read it as a church about two years ago. Um, and so the Hebrew word for goodness is Tove. And so as you inject Tove into a community, it's these, and this is what I want to get at. It's the little things. When you, when you enter into a church, that church will form you into the people that are in that church. If the culture of that church is abusive, if the culture of that church is bad, if the culture of that church is um, bigoted, if it's racist, if it's homophobic, if it's, if it's um, something that is overbearing, if it's a high control religious scenario in that church, and you enter into that and you take part in that, it will cause you to become this. It will cause you to become the kind of person 
that engages the same way that they do. And so to try and be a part of a church that has a bad culture, you may think you'll be able to resist it. Sociologists tell you it's not that easy. It's not really what's going to happen. You're going to end up being shaped and formed to better fit into that community. Because at the, at the center of the human heart is this desire to fit. This desire to belong. Um, and so there is this way that we are called to live in the church where when you enter into a church, you can shift. It takes about, they, t- they say it takes about five to seven years to shift the culture of a church, which is crazy to me. Shift the culture of any industry or business. That's a very long time. But the way it works is little tiny acts of goodness, of injecting small droplets into the culture that are good, that you would like to see, things that, things that you would like to become, you have to exercise and be in that space for other people. And as you inject this into the culture, it begins, it begins to form a body of goodness that begins to push people into goodness. I have seen so many people enter into a church Enter into a community, enter into a work environment, enter into what would eventually become a cult or something like that. Uh, Things that change them little by little and you watch them sort of slip away and they don't see it and they don't realize it. And they don't realize how things work, how things work to form you as a human being. A a culture of, of goodness, of tov, can be formed in the same way that a body of sin can be formed, but you have to choose it. Good culture, good systems filled with good people. And you can't just... Change things because you want to. You can't just walk in and be like, hey, we're going to stop doing this, we're going to stop doing this, we're going to stop doing this. And you can't just come in and say, is this the bad guy? He did the bad thing, fire this person. It's not going to get the badness out. If, if the guy on top gets thrown out for abuse or, or, or whatever, um, throwing the guy at the top out is, is not going to solve the problem. It's a culture problem. It, 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 it permeates from the top to the bottom. And everyone that was part of this culture um, needs to undergo sort of this Leviticus, I want to say Leviticus 16 sort of thing, this day of atonement, this, this day of confession, this day of repentance, of metanoia, of turning around, of, of repenting of who we are and what we've become, and laying it out in confession and saying, calling out, crying out to God and saying, we have failed, we have sinned, we have allowed sin to run rampant in this church, and sin has caused us to sin. Our sin has made a body that has shaped us and formed us in ways that are not Christ-like. We have no longer chosen the path of Christ. We have chosen the path of the flesh. And it takes a community-wide confession. And at that point, it takes a recognition and an affirmation that our individual little actions of goodness in the church, the ways we sacrifice for each other, the ways that we give to each other, the ways we take care of each other, these little things are building a culture that will supervene into a body, a culture that will downward, bring downward causation of goodness back into our lives. It will, it will form it. Like when somebody walks in, the culture should sort of usher them into also taking part in the goodness that is happening. 
But it doesn't happen unless we purposefully inject goodness. Paul has this thing that he constantly does where he says, hey, the person who has been stealing, must not. it's not just that he should stop stealing, he should start giving and doing good things with his hands. The person who has struggled in this way needs to replace that with goodness. So Paul always has this, there's two choices at any given moment. You can't just stop doing the bad. You need to start doing the good. You need to, you need to actually take part in the kingdom of God. You need to actually pour goodness into the system instead of standing back and looking at it and saying, Mm, no, I don't think it's good. You need to enter and begin to inject the goodness into it. And it's difficult. It's hard. Um, but in the end, this will form us in a way that is better. Um, you have to confess. You have to acknowledge the presence of, of the bad body. You have to put it to death. And some of this language in Romans 6 carries all of this. And this is a hearkening back to the Day of Atonement. At the Day of Atonement, they would have this lamb that they would put their forehead on, this goat, and they would... I think it was called the Azazel, and they would, they, would, they would proclaim the sins of the people. And the guy would probably for hours sit there with his hand on this goat and proclaiming all the sins that the people had committed against God, against each other, the ways that they had hurt each other, the ways that they had, they had allowed people to be oppressed, the way they ignored the immigrants and the, um, the way they had taken part in slaves, the, the, the ways that they had, they had diminished the image of God. And the priest would confess all of this. And then that goat would be led out into the desert and sent away. Oftentimes, they would chase it out there and push it off a cliff because you don't want your sins wandering back in to your camp. Um, and that goat would literally take away the sins of the people. That's how they viewed it. And so when Jesus enters in, you have John looking at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is this one who, who wants to confess it all and take it upon himself and take it away from you. There's this way that we put it down behind us. And it's a Leviticus 16 reference. But in, 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 the, new, in, the, in the first century church, it's, it's a picture of baptism. It's death, it's new life, it's proclaiming the old way is gone. I'm no longer under this body of sin that controls me. Now I'm under something different. And so we have Romans 6, 5, it says, For if we have been united with him in, death, in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Paul believes that the day of atonement and baptism and these acts of repentance and confession of, of laying it all out there and admit, I'm a sinner too. Here's the things that I struggle with. Here's the things that I have done and I'm calling out to God to take these sins away and that the body of Christ comes and we put these things to death and we inject goodness and we try to build a body of goodness that will guide us into the future and God is in this. It's the spirit. The spirit guides all of us into this. Um, in the church, this is another accomplishment of the cross. There's lots of ways that we look at the cross and say this is the symbol of Christianity. This is the, the way we're called to live our lives. We carry our cross. We are willing to lay down our lives and be broken so that others may live. But also the cross is this symbol of the death of the old life. Being led by the flesh, the things that we talked about last week. I, I can't really stack it all together in one, so go back and listen to last week if you need. But the ways that we choose to follow the flesh versus the ways that we choose to follow the spirit towards Jesus and Christ-likeness into human flourishing. And Paul says, the cross is essential for all of this. And the community is essential for all of this. But not just that. Your personal daily rhythm of listening to the Spirit is a part of all of this. The more, the more people in a church that spend regular time aligning themselves through prayer and meditation and contemplating the things of God, the more people in a church that do this, 
the more likely we are to inject goodness into the culture because our, our minds and our hearts are focused from that moment on the things of Jesus. And, and so, like, I've, I've, I've seen this form me over the years. I, for years, I, I've never been a great prayer. I've never been good at it. Um, maybe that will help some of you to know that. <laughs> um, uh, because maybe perhaps you struggle with prayer too, struggle with understanding how it functions and, and the part role it plays in your life. I know people who are what we call prayer warriors and, and they just are always, and, and they have all the insight. And so I, I sit at their feet and listen to them. But I have found if, if I just show up and I sit down and I spend time just talking about my struggles and my problems and confessing my sins, that God gives me something and I get a picture of, of what my life can be, and I ask Christ for that picture, I'll spend some time reading, I'll read some Proverbs, I'll read some Psalms. But as I do this, I've, I've noticed that over the years, for a long, long time, I wouldn't even do anything, because I didn't know what to do. But I just showed up. And I was present, and I was honest with myself and with God. And lo and behold, years down the road, I have to do it. I wake up every day like, yo, you need some time alone. You need some time in prayer. You need some time in reading and writing. You need to get this on paper. You need to... Because the, the people need this for you. And I'm not saying because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christian in a church. The people need this for you. To become a person of discipline. A person who works even if it's just a little, to listen to the presence of Jesus and to learn to follow that presence of Jesus. And as you do this little thing every day, watch things change. Watch that space begin to open up. Watch it begin to get filled with meaning. Watch a rhythm fall into it. And watch it become a thing that forms you so that you can help form others. And watch the community do the same. And we're, we're going to be doing our best over the coming months um, to offer some, maybe some online morning prayers for anyone who would like to join us. Um, these little things that, that adjust our trajectory every single day, they can form a body of goodness that, that makes us Christ-like, that forms our spiritual lives. And so I'm going to end with that. Um, growth is slow. Growth is not fast. Fifteen years ago, I weighed 50 pounds more. <laughs> And, and I learned a little bit at a time, just little steps, little things little, that formed this sort of culture in my mind of how I live. And when I applied this to every other part of my life, it has been beautiful. So I know this is a little more of a, it's not a TED talk, but listen. There are things that I've seen along the way that I have to share that have been just life-changing for me. And hopefully maybe this will help you as you read the book of Romans. I encourage you guys to get together. Read Romans 5 through 8. Look for this. Look for what Paul is doing. The way Paul describes sin and how it functions in your life, it really does mirror a lot of other parts of our life. They all kind of work together. And so I'll, I'll try to sort of solidify this into a writing tonight and put it on the blog for you guys to discuss in your house churches uh, on, on watermarktampa.com. And, uh, and if you want to talk more about this, let me know. If you want to read a book on it, um, last name is Krausman. I think the first name was Matthew. Um, but the book is called The Emergence of Sin. It's a little academic, but it's quite brilliant. Um, so uh, let's pray, shall we? Father, I pray that you would be with us. I pray that you would help us to see 
how people are formed in community towards you. I know a, a church gathering is a proclamation of, of your kingdom, of what we want to see in the kingdom. I pray that as we gather as a church, that we would gather in a way that we would like the, church, the, the, the world to look. I pray that we would inject goodness into our conversations, that we would inject goodness into each other's lives, that we would have just little actions that inject a little bit at least of beauty and grace and mercy. We want to be people who are merciful, so let us inject mercy. We want to be people who are gracious and generous, and let us inject these things into the culture and let it in turn form us through your spirit and your working in us to make us more like you. Cultivate the fruits of the spirit upon us. Let us become loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and faithful and gentle. Let us learn to have self-control and let us inject all this into the culture so that we become these things. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. So hopefully in some way that was helpful. If you, uh, if you would stand with me and we can do the Lord's Prayer together and then uh, be on our way. I'm going to take a big nap. Let's, let's do this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all. Love you all. Have an incredible Sunday today.